0: Our networks tend to be incredibly segregated and compartmentalized. So for a variety of reasons, we end up interacting mostly with people who are very similar to ourselves along all kinds of demographic lines. And so that means if you want to spread something widely, especially something where it's not easy to communicate, that it takes deeper kinds of communication, that means not only reaching out directly through your own friends and and family, but... Reaching out more broadly and putting yourself in situations that you normally wouldn't be in and talking to groups that you normally wouldn't talk to.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who have an insider peek into a world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now there are some questions that have been on my mind recently and I say I say recently I mean probably more so in the past 12 to 24 months And they sound a little bit like this. Number one, is there a science behind how and which ideas become mainstream? Number two, could there be a formula to driving a movement through a human network at maximum impact and speed? And number three, is it possible to develop a framework, or formula that would predict which ideas or people we pay attention to, which we ignore and which we ultimately end up acting upon? Now, other than me just being a massive nerd, I feel like if I had the answer to any of those questions and the answer to those questions was, yes, there is a formula. Yes, there is a framework. Then that could then be used to predict some of the situations that have happened over the past couple of years that seemed, or at least to me, to be unexpected politically and culturally. So essentially. The question is this, is there something predictable here that I am missing when it comes to who and what ideas gain influence? Now, my next guest has dedicated a career to, among many other things, understanding these questions, understanding the science behind these questions, the science of human networks, in particular decoding how our position in these networks impacts the most important decisions of our lives. So why, why is that vital to the question of influence? Why this topic? Well, within our networks, where we sit in our networks specifically, writes the story of pretty much every choice we make. Traditionally, these networks were the people we grew up with, the people we worshipped with, the people we worked with. However, now and perhaps most influentially, they are the people, groups and platforms we spend our digital lives interacting with online. These networks that we spend so many hours a day being a part of make up the fabric of our lives, our identities, our choices, and most importantly, everything that we come to believe to be true. And yet, amazingly, when I looked into this topic, because it has been on my mind, when I looked into this topic, very little is known about the science of human networks, in particular how ideas spread from one part of a network to another. Which is why I was so excited when my next guest released his book. In fact, he released the book. About three people sent the book to me to read, just probably to shut me up. And as soon as I got my grubby little hands on it, I knew I had to get him on the show. Matthew O. Jackson. Matthew is the author of The Human Network How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Your Beliefs, and Behaviors. He is a professor of economics at Stanford University, an external faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute, and a senior fellow at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. He is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a former Guggenheim Fellow. Having reached more than a million students via his popular online courses on social and economic networks, not to mention network theory, he is the primary brain in this area at the moment on the planet in today's conversation Matthew and I unpack the digital tipping point in human revolutions and all the major revolutions of our time how when and why those ideas took hold why influence and popularity are distinctly different and anybody that's heard me speak anywhere at any time will know that this is a big one for me popularity and influence are massively different things And how the person with the least contacts is often the most influential. The importance of being the primary translator, or as he would say, the center star for your target market. How not enough people focus on the halo effect of building influence, where it's who you know, more so who they know, rather than how many people you know that makes all the difference. How to go about identifying the most influential people within your network in order to reach out to them. And finally, some of the key patterns that make an idea or a movement contagious. There, there is this quote that Matthew uses in his book by Sonia Sotomayor. And it goes like this. Virtue in obscurity is rewarded only in heaven. To succeed in this work, you have to be known to people. Understanding human networks is essentially that. It is understanding the science of becoming known which I would suggest whatever work you do and wherever you do it is usually the key to taking that work to the next level. So I will talk no more. Grab a cup of coffee, a notebook, a pen, whatever, you know, put your pen in your top pocket like you used to in your science class and get ready for a crash course in global movements, historical figures, and network-based influence. Essentially enjoy my conversation with the fascinating Matthew O. Jackson. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Matthew Jackson.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Jewel.
1: I want, to see, I want to kick off this conversation the way that I would usually kick off most conversations, if not all, and that is to ask you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or or an extrovert and I know for those that have a research background that can often be but then are required to talk about their research or go out there and spread the ideas behind their research that can sometimes be a bit of a tricky tricky mix
0: yes yeah indeed uh I socially I'm definitely an introvert I find it really difficult to meet new people and to talk to people but professionally I think I'm probably a bit more of an extrovert especially when it comes to writing and and disseminating information in other ways so it's it's easier to make contact when you're not face to face with a person I'm nervous that way
1: and have you have you cuz i think that's something that a lot of people find is there anything that you've developed to overcome that? Because we were just talking, you just presented to, you're in England at the moment, just presented to the Bank of England. I mean, that's a lot of people face-to-face staring at you who are possibly not in the best frame of mind right now with everything that's going on with Brexit. <laughs> so have you developed any, any ways that make you feel more comfortable standing up and, and talking about your ideas in front of sometimes willing, sometimes unwilling people?
0: Sure, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to preparation and, and just feeling confident and knowing what I'm going to talk about and, and uh, you know, having something to say to people. And, you know, the more I think of that, the easier it all becomes. And the nervousness usually becomes, comes from wondering whether people are going to be interested in what you have to say. But the more confident you are in what you have, then I think it becomes easier.
1: The, the, more, you, the more you feel like you know your stuff. It definitely, yeah, exactly. it definitely gets a lot easier then well let 's let 's start We had a brief conversation before before pressing record today that I had you know I had read your book and got so much so much out of it having spent a career on the ground trying to get traction behind ideas and people and and spread messages through networks in order to build platforms of authority. I had never come across kind of the, the science behind it before, or the you know the historical the historical measurements of it before, and so it just felt like everything that I had learned and questioned suddenly your book came in. And it was like oh 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 that that and I was texting a friend of mine who's building an app at the moment. So bottom line, I just I got a lot out of it, and for anybody that's listening, the human network check it check it out let's start with let's start with the most obvious question what what is a human network and i'm guessing it it would have changed significantly over the years
0: sure and the you know the most basic form is just the people we interact with on a daily basis you know family friends and colleagues acquaintances And then it it sort of goes out from there. Sometimes we're in touch with people all the time. There's other people that we keep in touch with by long distance. And as you're pointing out, it's changing all the time. You know, it, it used to be that we could only interact with people who lived with us. And over the centuries, it's gotten to the point where we could interact by writing. Then we could interact by telegraph or telephone and now we can interact via the internet and and a whole series of platforms. And so we're in constant touch with people and that, that makes a huge difference in our lives in terms of you know, who we can draw upon and, and who we can hear from and influence at any point in time.
1: You said in the book that human networks determine our power, influence, opinions, opportunities, behaviors, and accomplishments. Um, At its I, I wrote a note here. You know, at its most basic level, is that because you can't know or you can't be what you can't see? Is that is that the driving the driving idea behind that?
0: Yeah, I, I guess you know, uh, people are gatekeepers for us in in, in a uh, quite a wide sense. So, what information we get you know, we can get things through social media, but the way we understand them often comes from talking through them with other people. You know, we can read books and so forth, but but really it, all the conversations we've had with people and, and what we understand makes sense of it. And uh, off, often people are the way, the ways in which we get jobs, the ways in which we decide whether we go to university. Uh, I mean, they're influencing our lives from, from a very early age. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's something that we're conscious of at some level, but I think we don't quite really understand in, in a deeper level until we sort of see the, the measurements of it.
1: And when you're, I mean, I think we, we at a, at some point in our lives, you know, you do, you do look at your network, you look at the people who are around you, people you surround yourself by, people you listen to, um, people you follow in this day and age, and, And take stock and, you know, ask yourself questions about whether this is the environment or what these are the influences that, that I want to be around me. Before we get into, before we get into the work a little bit more, have, has studying that, what you've studied impacted the questions you ask about your own network?
0: Oh, yes, definitely. And, and a lot of it is that I'm a lot more aware of the biases that I have and how I've come to have them. And just the, you know, the, the limit, the limited scope of, of my network and, and tried to put myself in positions where I have more access to information than I would have had naturally. And, and just being aware of all the limitations and, and, you know, I I change the way I talk to people when they tell me something. I'll ask them, "Well, where did you hear that? And how did you hear that? And and try to trace back information." So there's there's a lot of things that it's changed in terms of my awareness. I think.
1: You you use the um, the two thousand and ten Tunisia revolution, as an example of the the size, scale, and speed of human networks. Now, I mean, I remember that. I remember. And I remember thinking at the time and having conversations at the time about how iPhones, specifically the digital world, had had really changed. How revolutions can begin, the speed at which that they can take place. Um, you know what starts and stops a movement. Can you? Was that a turning point?
0: Yeah, I, I think it was. Uh... Definitely a, a point at which the power of social media became really apparent and the reach of it. And, you know, the the fact that a lot of people were discontent, you know, th- there's many times when people are discontent, but they're not sure that everybody else is discontent. And, and it you know, it's harder to communicate, in, in, especially in the situations where the Arab Spring, where there were a lot of countries with, with a lot of repression and... Social media made it very apparent that that there were that the dissatisfaction was very widespread, and I think you know the the power of of that and the speed with which that realization came was was overwhelming and it you know it was a fascinating thing in many ways for social media in the sense that you know early on Twitter was very useful in in terms of getting information out, but then when it came later on when people wanted to actually organize and and uh, organized revolutions and demonstrations, then they moved more to Facebook. So you even got to see the, the sort of differences in the different social platforms and, and how well they were, were organizing people and what their strengths and weaknesses were.
1: I was actually just reading in the cafe this morning as I was grabbing my, grabbing my coffee that Facebook had got in trouble on this side of the world again. Um, unfortunately, after everything that happened in Christchurch um, which would be a few weeks ago at the time that we were recording this. Uh, and it's it's fascinating watching from the sidelines with, with something like Facebook and thinking, you know, unfortunately they're trying to figure this out at the same time that we're trying to figure this out. You know, they don't have any more rules than anybody else about, you know, the limits here or the boundaries or how to filter out what should be disseminated versus what shouldn't be disseminated have you have you come to develop any ideas or beliefs around what the role of social media sh- should or could be in this larger landscape?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with anything, you know, you find that there's wonderful uses for it and amazing benefits it brings. And then often with different new technologies, you, you have bad things that can be done with them. And some of those are... Ones where people are taking advantage of it, and other ones are just sort of side effects that you didn't realize it might have and I think with the large social media platforms, we're getting both side effects that we didn't anticipate and also manipulations where people are taking advantage of the systems and you know and and I think you know the fascinating part about it is that it all gets back to the natural proclivities that we have I mean, so you know people. Like to find other people who have similar views and similar perspectives and similar backgrounds and and similar opinions about the world and and now it's so much easier to find other people via these kinds of platforms and and then form a a group and and reinforce your own opinions and and that's very natural and it can be wonderful in a lot of ways uh, you know it, it can make you. F- able to find other people who love painting or love, you know, cycling or whatever your hobby is. Um, And, and, and at the same time, it can also help people find people, other people who have extreme political views or uh, hatred or, you know, uh, other kinds of things. And, and that's all going on at the same time. And, and, you know, the system is sort of designed to connect people and it's designed to connect people who want to be connected and, and they can be, want to be connected because they want to be friends and help each other out and they can also be want to be connected because they are extremists and and want to do terrible things and and so you know that that that's always going to be part of a system and it's not easy to figure out how to navigate that
1: you know i had written down as a question you know what's the What's the urgency to understand this now from a from a general public standpoint or anybody that wants to understand influence at a deeper level? And I think you you just touched on a bit of it there that, you know, we understanding that the algorithms that dictate what we hear, who we hear from, the information that we receive, you know, they were built to help us connect with people who I would not say agree with us, but connect with people who are like-minded. Help draw towards us people that you know we would find interesting but there is a dark side to that you know the, the some people have called it the the echo chamber of me i know you yeah. talk about it in the book
0: yes yeah yeah it, certainly and I, I think as you're pointing out the the algorithms naturally try to connect you with other individuals who you know are are, are similar in some ways and and that you know, the the algorithm itself is trying to engage people and make people happier and and get more activity on the platform. And as a byproduct of that, then we end up with this kind of selectivity. and And I think, you know, one thing that so, for instance, you know, finding friends through friends is something that's very common, right? And if you look at most platforms, um say LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever platform WeChat, et cetera, they'll often make suggestions for friends. And there's an algorithm behind that. And often it says, you know, you have so many friends in common. Don't you think this would be a great friend for you? And indeed, that means it's, you know, somebody who's very close to my social circle and somebody I should know. But at the same time, that means this is another person that's very much like the people I already know, probably. And, it, you know, that that sort of reinforces this kind of circle it's it's not suggesting here's a random person around the world who has something really interesting to tell you uh it, it, it's instead looking much more locally and in, in terms of my my or my sphere
1: but wouldn't that be int- you've just facebook if you're listening wouldn't that be an interesting an, an incredible idea to explore that you know as well as people that Possibly have a lot in common with you. That there could be suggestions because you know Facebook have been talking a lot recently about the role of or the desire to encourage more meaningful interactions. And depending on how you interpret the word meaningful, a meaningful interaction could be here's somebody that disagrees with you, you know, strongly on a number of factors. Mm-hmm. Here's somebody who you know comes from a country where you have where you have never been. Here's somebody. I don't know. I'm making it up now, but. I just think that would be right, a right, right, really right. interesting conversation yeah. to explore. What other recommendations could Facebook make to make interactions meaningful at a different level as opposed to, yes. hey, you like this, so do I.
0: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I, I think that the hard part is doing it in a way that people wouldn't just say, wow, this is just too far out there and not for me. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to do it in a way that somehow people really get something out of it and that that's really tricky, especially with such a large world. But, you know, I, I, I find myself now since I've been studying this for a long time, I, I consult a lot of media and a lot of very different huge range of media on any particular topic. And, and, you know, at first, it was sort of, uh, I don't know, I'd say sometimes I almost get angry at, at looking at something where I, I thought something was terribly distorted. But now I look at it from a much more scientific perspective. And And each time I see a different story, I try and say, well, why are they writing it this way? What's different about the way that they're covering it than somebody else's and, and the more you look into it, the more you can begin to uncover, you know, where's the opinion in, in an article? And where's the fact? And, and you know why is it biased in a particular direction and and you begin to get a much clearer picture, I think of what's going on so we can all do that and expose ourselves to more a variety of information and and try to make sense of of everything and I think it's it's quite enlightening, but it it at first it you know it, it feels very strange and and it's very counter to our natural our natural tendencies I
1: think also we we have a natural tendency towards simplicity. You know, you want to read something, take the information, internalize it, and then get on with your day as opposed to, you know, spending time asking what, are, what you just mentioned, which are very critical questions or difficult questions, time-consuming questions. And um, I don't know I can be as guilty of that as anybody else. You read it and you're like, okay, great. Got some information. Right, right. Move on. Um and we're going to talk about this more in terms of the future of investigative journalism, but I think that's probably one of the the challenges that we're that we're hoping for sound bites.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Let's t- let's. I want to start with the most basic building block when it comes to you know how human networks can be used to spread an idea or mobilize a, a large scale or large scale action. The size of your network, and I think this is a really important one to touch upon because I see that this particular question playing out in all different kinds of ways at the moment you know playing out amongst younger generations in terms of how many followers you have how many people are looking at you playing out in the corporate world you know should we or should we not pay x amount of money to this person because they have x amount of followers now in your book you go back and you go back in history again which which i love the fact that you go backwards and forwards um from stories, stories from now, stories years ago. And you use an example of Mahatma Gandhi, who mobilized tens of thousands of people to participate in the Salt March, Salt Salt March, not March, in 1930. And that was a movement that then went on to inspire the work of Martin Luther King. So the question you ask in telling that story is, did the influence they have... Just boil down to how many people they were able to reach, i.e., influence equals how many connections you have. Is is that is that a building block of influence? Is that a good place to start? How many people am I talking to?
0: Um, yes, I mean it is the most basic one, and and often, you know, when we we judge people, uh, we you know sort of try and gauge how many people are are they in touch with or can they influence? And it's, it's a, it's sort of the most natural starting point. Uh, I remember actually I did field work sometime and I was in Africa some number of years ago and somebody asked me how big a chief I was and and they wanted to know literally how many people I controlled or were under me. And, and I said, you no, know, I'm not a, I'm a teacher. I, I'm not a chief. I, I don't control anybody. And they were very, very disappointed. They wanted to know, you know, sort of, uh, but you know, it's, it's sort of a question of, how many people we can reach and if we just want to get information out in a very superficial level, then, then, you know, just counting people is a good starting point. But if we want something to really become viral or to move through a whole population, you know, then then we have to look a little deeper in terms of how well connected somebody is, because it's not just how many friends they have, but how influential those people are that really matter. And you,
1: you, you you talk about that. You talk about the difference between popularity and influence, which again I loved because I think they're two words that have become enmeshed, which mm-hmm. you know, have very little have very little really to do to do with each other. And you you used an example of a microfinance company in southern India. Can you can you walk through walk through that story? Because I think it's an amazing example of the difference between the amount of people you know versus the quality of people that you know.
0: Right, right, yeah, it's a, it's a very good example. And it, it was a study uh, that I, I was doing with some colleagues where we were looking at how uh, to get information out among a, a population of people. And in this case, microfinance are are small, tiny loans to very poor people and the bank wanted to be able to get them out. But these are people who are in and, and some of these villages were mostly illiterate and didn't have it wasn't easy to reach them in other ways. So they had to get word out by word of mouth. And so what they did was try to go into each village and tell people that they thought would be influential. And their idea of influential was to just find people that they thought would connect with a lot of other people. So they were looking for shopkeepers and, and teachers and um small group leaders and they would go into a village and tell them about this microfinance program and then hopefully they would hope that 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 would spread the news to a lot of people and you know what we did is we went in and we mapped out all the social networks in those villages so we we were in 43 different villages so we had a a pretty wide set of villages and then tried to find what characteristics it was about the people that they initially started with, the sort of initial seeds or, or points where they injected the information into the villages. How did they matter in terms of getting the word out? And what, what, what were the characteristics of those people that really made it? And surprisingly, just the raw number of, po- of their friends, you know, sort of the, the most basic count of their popularity, didn't really matter at all. Um, what mattered was more how many people they could reach at different levels, so how many friends their friends had and their friends of friends, and sort of uh, an iterative measure of of influence so it, it you know having more connected friends or better connected friends was more important than just having many friends and, and in a very precise sense
1: so essentially the you know, to have 5,000 friends who all know three people each is not as valuable when it comes to spreading an idea, getting awareness, making an impact, as having, say, 500 friends who all have 500 each.
0: Exactly, exactly. And and so, and that, and that keeps multiplying out at different levels. And so, you know, what you really want is is that full spreading measure, not just the initial, you know, you can think of the, you know, having lots and lots of friends means I can get something out uh, at a very short radius at a very quick amount of, you know, short amount of time. But whether it's going to stick and actually, you know, permeate through the society, that's, that's something that takes um, a much broader uh, position in the network in terms of being well connected and, and having connections that are well connected and so forth. in exactly the way you're you're pointing out.
1: It made me think. I don't know if you heard. There's a, there was a tool called Clout. Did you have you heard of Clout?
0: Oh, no, I haven't.
1: No, it was a. It was a tool that was quite big about a year or so ago, and it was basically a way you put in your you put in your social media URLs. Anybody that's checking it out right now, it, it doesn't exist anymore. You put in your social media URLs, and it came back with what was called a Clout score, which which it believed to be a measure of your influence. It was a mark out of ten. I'm oh, sorry, a mark out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. And you were, you know, 50 out of 100 influential, you were 70 out of 100 influential, your clout score. It got yeah. bought for purchase for the company itself, got purchased for millions and millions of dollars. And then it was shut down because it started to, it started to become really controversial for, I think for some of the reasons that you were talking about. So companies were starting to use it as a recruitment tool to figure mm-hmm. out how well connected somebody is, which I actually think as a as a prediction, we're going to, you know, as these tools become more sophisticated, we will probably see more of. But, you know, people were literally losing work as a result of this, you know, tiny one out of a hundred, five out of a hundred, 95 out of a hundred tool. <laughs> right. And it didn't take into consideration um, the the quality of your network. It didn't take into consideration the amount of people that you can call who will take your call, which as we know is usually a far higher degree of influence. Um, It really just took into consideration these numbers. And so, yeah, it was a huge controversy. The site gets shut down. And there hasn't really been anything else come in to replace it that I am aware of anyway. Send me through anything that anybody knows of. What Do you think that that's possible? Is it possible to create a tool that actually accurately... um, can measure somebody's influence?
0: Well, I, I think there's two parts to it. One, one is that these kinds of measures are going to be very unidimensional. And as you're pointing out, you know, it depends on how trusted the person is and how charismatic they are and how well connected they are to these other individuals. And there, there's a whole series of different things that are going to be important in, in determining somebody's influence. And beyond that, it depends a lot on the context. So there are certain contexts in which a person might be very influential and another one which they might have no influence. And, and so, you know, sort of trying to boil it down to one number, it it could be that the clout number was very useful on some level, but, but, you know, starting to to hire or fire people based on that kind of number is, you know, would be like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just silly. Um, in, in terms of overweighting one attribute that, that, you know, depends on a lot of other things in terms of its its usefulness. I
1: think I think it also speaks to the difficulty that a lot of companies, corporations that I, you know, that I speak to, are having trying to work this stuff out. You know, trying to, you know, do we pay an influencer because they have X amount of millions of followers? Well, you can purchase followers. It's not a it's not a signal of engagement. Do we? How do we try and encourage our workforce? to be more influential within their networks. Do their networks belong to them? Do their networks belong to us from a professional mm-hmm. standpoint? And that's why I think the work that you do is is so fascinating because it's a, a huge topic at the moment that people are really trying trying to navigate. And you've I think you said yourself in the book that it's something that the scientific community has studied, but you know, governments, corporations and the general public still know very little. About the impact of networks what's the one thing that they should know in terms of its its usefulness from a measurement point of view? Should it be measured? Should it just be you know it's a it's a wild beast, leave it alone, focus on other things
0: um, no I mean i I, oh, I guess there's things that come up that you know for for instance, uh, understanding influence. And, and thinking of it in sort of this unidimensional way, I, I think is is one thing that we begin to realize doesn't work when we start looking across different contexts and so for instance, as you were pointing out, you know if we just think about popularity, um, you know one example I talk about is Michael Jordan you know he, he's a person that was just immensely popular and ended up you know making much more money from selling shoes than he did from playing basketball despite his incredible talent at playing basketball. And, and that was because he just could reach a lot of people and was a role model in terms of his abilities, but he wouldn't be a person that you would necessarily want to sell insurance. You know, he was a good person for selling basketball shoes. Um, But, you know, when, when it comes to, to looking at people who, have the ability to influence somebody when the decisions are more complicated, then you know you need somebody who's actually reaching people who uh, have reached themselves and are influential themselves. and now you need this kind of iterative definition and, and it's no longer just a popularity count. And you know that's that's different from, say, a political context where in a political context, I have to be a person who's a, a good broker or a person who can intermediate and bring other people together. And so depending on what context you're looking at, it can be a completely different measure of influence that we want to, we really want to gravitate towards.
1: Let's let's pick up on that broker word there for a second. You talk in the book about your, the center star principle. Mm -hmm. And you said it's one of the most interesting measures from a power, from a power perspective. Can you walk, walk us through what is the center star principle?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I, there's a great example of the rise of the Medici in uh in, in 15th century Florence and that was a time where there were a whole series of different families who were struggling for power uh, and the Medici were were not the re- wealthiest nor the the m- most politically powerful and they were struggling against uh, a set of other families the Strozzi and the Albizzi and and you know it went back and forth they were uh are literally armed aggressions and at one point the cosimo de medici the family patriarch was kicked out of florence and banished and you know he had built a position where he was literally the center of a star uh, among other families that that were his friends and the friends and and business partners and they also co-married so they they married off daughters and sons to other families and through these different relationships he was able to actually unite and and raise a militia of other families Um, because as a center of a star it was almost like being a godfather sort of an early an early incarnation of a godfather um, being able to call on favors and bring these people together whereas the other families were sort of in a you know it, it not at the center of a star but more in a in a sort of a mesh and none of them had the you know were really the critical person that everybody looked to to sort of unite and to control the group and the medici would, when you look at the the network position of them it was just so obvious how powerful they were compared to the others that were 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 all redundant and none of them were the critical connector between the other people and the medici thrived because of it
1: is, does that boil down, um, the words that keep going through my head when you're talking about that is almost the favor bank. You know, the, the amount of value, be it by marrying your daughter to a family or be by doing actual favors, you know, the godfather principle, I will help you with this. Um, by brokering out value as frequently and as generously as you can within the circle of influence that you want to create, that's the fastest way to to develop this kind of center star principle. Where all roads kind of lead to you or through you in one way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Cosimo de Medici was uh, amazing at this, and and actually paid off a lot of people's loans just out of the goodness of his heart, so to speak. So he would just go in, and somebody would have debts, and they were in trouble, and he would just go and pay off the the debt or, or forgive the debt, and made a lot of you know lifelong friends that way and you know that that's something where he sort of built up he he understood that that you needed allies and you needed people that you could call in for favors at, at some later time and you know that that principle was was something that that I think you know it, it's hard to know whether you know historically whether he consciously did it and, and understood all the ramifications of it or whether it was just in his nature but it it certainly made a huge difference in their ability eventually to to really rally a group of, of other families to help him
1: it's it's interesting it just you know you've you've got the Medici's how I mean so long ago working that principle and then you've got I mean gary Gary Vaynerchuk wrote a book I think it was back in 2013 called jab 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 right hook, which is basically exactly the same principle of business, which mm-hmm. is you give you give you give you give and then you've you have earned the right. To ask for some kind of reciprocity, or you've earned the right to have some kind of influence. Um, so it hasn't changed; it hasn't changed yes, that yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. Now that value is just delivered often digitally, as opposed to you know in a small room at the back of a at the back of a tavern somewhere. Um, so we've talked about we've talked about size of network. And, you know, that's helpful when it comes to spreading initial awareness, but from a traction point of view can be limited just because it it has a stopping point. And then we've, we've talked about the, the quality of your network, which is often having a smaller number of people, but who are highly influential themselves. And then we've talked about, um, offering value to those people. So becoming the center star of that particular network, Something that wasn't, something that wasn't in your book, and I'm interested to know if you've got any thoughts on it, is that, you know, that all of that is centered around the road, you know, the road itself, the fastest path. What about, what about the vehicle? Is, is there anything that you have learned about the format or type of message that tends to move the fastest, be it um, style, highly emotive, story, charisma, or format, you know? Video, visual, written.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I think it's it's hard to say generally, but there's you know a few anecdotes that that are that come to mind, and one is there was a study recently that that found that you know f- fake news or false stories were retweeted and passed along faster and more widely than than true ones were and i think the lesson behind that isn't that you know people want to send fake news around as much as it is that things that surprise us or that we find interesting in some way are are more evocative than things that are just sort of oh yeah i, I knew that and and so that's the that means that you know people tend to 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 spread and pass along things that somehow they find More interesting, and interesting often can be right or could be wrong, and and so you know that's one part of it. And the other part is you know whether or not I want to share something depends on uh, what the interest in in talking about it is, right? I I think when when it was the first video ever to go to have more than a billion YouTube views was the Gangnam Style video that came out of (laughs) Korea. Yes, it was, (laughs) and. Yeah, you know, why why Gangnam Style? So you sort of look at it. It's and, a good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the singer had never really had a, a major hit before outside of Korea and Japan, and it, it, you know, it was kind of catchy, but it was you know, it wasn't like an amazing advance in music style or something. Uh, but you know, it had that social aspect, so it was catchy and. Then, and then once I heard that everybody else was, I, I went to see it because I heard everybody else was seeing it. And so, you know, at some point you become one of the billions of people that watch the video just because everybody else is watching it. And so there's also this kind of social effect, which means that things can snowball and, and that leads to a lot of inequality in what spreads and doesn't spread. And some of it's by chance, you get a little bigger and you start spreading a little more and, and that, that begets itself. and And so you have these rich get richer kinds of effects and and networks and with social media that's amplified. So it it really just ramps up. And and I think that, you know, not everything can go viral, but but it means that things can go incredibly viral these days. And and partly just because everybody else is looking at it, it becomes interesting.
1: I want to pick up on that point you just made about fake news, fake news, there spreading faster just because it tends to have, it is designed in such a way as to catch your attention. It's designed and that's the point of it. You know, people don't create fake news or some people might create it as a hobby, but usually it's created with a very specific intent in mind. And that tends to mean that it's been crafted very carefully. I know for me over the years of, of working in this area and being very interested in this topic of you know what influences us how do we influence other people the three triggers that i've come come to recognize very quickly are drama outrage and fear if something feels like it holds a disproportionate amount of either drama outrage or fear then i am immediately you know i, I, I immediately pull back have mm-hmm. you over your time, so immersed in this, have you developed certain triggers that when you see them, you think, okay, hold on. That's a red flag.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess, um, you know, I but partly one thinks of the motivation of the person sending something, I, and I guess that's difficult if it, if it's coming very indirectly, but that's part of the reason for always checking sources and trying to trace things back. Um, and I think, it, it's increasingly difficult in a in a media kind of world to check things, especially when they're ones that, as you're saying, you know, point uh, somehow grab us because of fear or are dramatic. And I always think of it as you know, is this something that grabs people's attention because they they're worried that if they don't pay attention to this, they're somehow going to be harmed? or because they really deeply should be believing it. And, and I think um, part of the the places where fake news has done its most damage has been in, in situations where it's taking advantage of fears that people have and, and preying upon those and and that means that they're willing to pass it on even if they're a little bit skeptical because they're afraid that if they don't pay attention to it they'll be making a bad choice
1: i think the, the most common one that i see various different iterations of especially especially on front pages front pages of of newspapers is the, the they are coming to get you principle you know insert they insert group of people are coming to get you insert why and how um I read actually I found this beautiful image online recently and it was a it was a photograph of the wall of a classroom and I've been trying to dig out where it is and who did it and I haven't been able to yet but it was a it was a teacher a primary school teacher and she had written on the wall of her classroom as the guiding questions of that classroom um, who writes the stories who's missing from the stories Who stands to gain from the stories? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, let alone children. What an incredible guiding set Mm -hmm. of questions, right, right, for anybody to to be asking themselves.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, and and trying to trace back and really understand the origins of these things. You know, Mm -hmm. I I always think that one of the most fascinating examples is the the um, first study on that. Linked the MMR vaccine to autism, so this was a study that was published in the late 1990s in the journal Lancet, and it, it, you know, had a looked at 12 kids who had autism or or some uh, developmental problems, and then these were kids who had been vaccinated, and and based on this relationship, they they speculated, and they did actually didn't even. Conclude that that there was some relationship, and it turns out that the study was fraudulent, and that the person who was the principal investigator was being paid by a company suing a vaccine company, and that it, you know it, it didn't match up with any of the data that that later was able to find that there wasn't a relationship. But what happened is the you know the simple fear um, was was quite powerful. And, and also, it was something that was then reported very, very widely. And I think as humans, we have this really basic, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say a problem, but weakness and in, in, in terms that we're, we don't realize it, but we're influenced by how many times we hear things. So if, if I hear things from five different sources, even if they're all just re reporting the same thing, I count that as sort of five times that I've heard this. That, that must be, you know, that that's more convincing than if I heard it just once. And in a world where where news is spreading and coming through all these outlets at the same time, it becomes very easy to be over-convinced of something. And and then, you know, that echo is still echoing around the world today and, and you know, leading to a lot of measles problems and mumps problems.
1: And, it, you know, it doesn't... This isn't a question of, of the validity of somebody's views. This is more this is more the question of how of getting really curious and critical on how we come to develop our views, how we come to internalise those views, turn them into a, a belief system. You know, and that example I love because you know, yet again it's an example of that. You know, they're coming to get you, they're out to get you, insert pharmaceutical companies. Um which seems to be the most compelling message to us as tribal creatures, as creatures who are primarily wired to notice fear and threat above, you know, opportunity and curiosity for the sake of our very survival. Um, yeah, it, it, it just fascinates me how that particular message is often used as the easiest way to get people's sure. attention, especially in politics
0: yeah yeah and and actually in, in as you mentioned it with pharmaceutical companies, it also has some ring of truth to it because we know that they they take advantage of us in other ways yeah. With, you know, and that's so, where, yeah
1: and that's where it gets harder doesn't it because you you know going back to what you were saying at the beginning of this conversation, you know to get critical about something is difficult because we want a simple answer, either they are or they are not out to get me right are anyway, they or are they not yes, and yeah, yeah. you know the answer is not that the answer's not that easy. Yeah, um, I loved I loved a quote you used in the book. It said, "Virtue in obscurity is rewarded only in heaven." To succeed in this work, you have to be known to people, and that was um, Sonia Sotomayor. Yes, yeah. It, it it got me thinking. If you if you were trying to spread an idea, you know, if I gave you a challenge today, and I said, "Okay." I want you to pick an idea, pick a product, um, pick a conversation, something you want, you wanted to drive at maximum speed and impact. What would you focus on first? Where where would you start based on everything you now understand about networks and movements?
0: Yeah, I I think that there's two things. One is that, you know, our, our networks tend to be incredibly segregated and, and compartmentalized. So for for a variety of reasons, we end up interacting mostly with people who are very similar to ourselves along all kinds of demographic lines. And so that means if you want to spread something widely, especially something where it's not easy to communicate that it takes, you know, deeper kinds of communication, that means not only reaching out directly through your own friends and, and family, but reaching out more broadly and putting yourself in, in situations that you normally wouldn't be in, and talking to groups that you normally wouldn't talk to. And and the second is to really know your listener, and to, to understand who it is you're communicating with and and what their motivations are. And, and, you know, of course, to have something that that really matters to them, and then try to explain why it matters to them and, and, you know, as plainly as you can. Um, and I think, you know, those two things would be the ones that, that I I think of as most primary.
1: Is there, is there a case study or an example from your, from your studies where you think it's almost like it's a textbook, it's a textbook, how to, it's a textbook, um, golden rules of spreading an idea or or moving something i mean people often cite the me too movement that's just very recent and very fresh in everybody's minds
0: yeah um i mean it's hard to think of one example that sort of captures everything the the study where we were talking about before with the microfinance made me very aware of how important these sort of splits in the networks were because they're you know these were indian villages and they're heavily segregated along caste lines and it turns out that if you don't get news out to different caste groups then you know it can all just circulate within one small group inside a village, and even though these are you know small villages of only a thousand people, uh, it, they can be split into three or four groups that basically don't communicate with each other, and and so understanding that kind of segmentation in a network is really important, and and that happens at all levels in our societies, and it's not by ca- just by caste or race or whatever. It's it, it's you know who's communicating with whom is. It, it it it's really uh, highly segmented, and so you really have to reach out across those group lines. Um, so
1: almost looking at your target market and going, okay, what what are the what are the fractions within that target market, and what, who are the possible influencers who have the highest highest reach and highest quality reach within each fraction?
0: Is right, that- right. Yeah, Yeah, and actually we, we found something really fascinating. So, you know, at at one level, if you're a researcher and you have a big picture of everybody's network, it's easy to find those people who are highly influential. You know, we can look in a network and see who's who's well positioned and who can talk to whom. But in a lot of situations, you don't have any information like that. And one thing we try we're trying to do is figure out, well, how do we identify these people without going around and, and mapping out social networks everywhere? Because that becomes incredibly expensive. And once you're talking to everybody and listening to their networks, you might as well just tell them directly. Um, so what, what we found is just asking people was incredibly informative. So we could go into a village and ask people. Who who is it that's around you? Who's the best broadcaster of information? If we wanted to get information out about something, and the people they told us were were turned out to be highly central, and in fact even better than than our ability to predict who was going to be the best broadcasters, because they were fact you know also aware of people's believability and their sociability and other kinds of things that we couldn't see just directly in terms of measuring networks. So. Yeah, it, it, just asking people was incredibly useful.
1: I love, I love that. Just, just ask. I, yeah, yeah. You know, yes. Just, I mean, I get asked asked that question a lot. You know, what kind of, in terms of, you know, going back to being the the center star, what kind of value can I can I add in my to my audience? What kind of questions should I be answering? What kind of problems do they have? How do I identify what they care about, what they don't care about, and and usually that's my answer. Just, just ask. Like put together a focus group, um, incentivize in some way, make some phone calls, um, take them all out for life. I mean, just ask. That's as good a starting point as
0: any. Yeah. And it, and it, it turns out that people are very good at sort of naming influential people. Uh, you know, we want to find out who's the most influential in a company. You, you know, go around and ask a few people, and and they'll be able to tell you. They will, they it's, will it's, always yeah. be able to
1: tell, because <laughs> usually they've just spoken to them at the water cooler. So. <laughs> right, right, right,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah indeed. Uh,
1: um, so I just want to quickly circle back to you know we've talked about how to build and user network to influence and just circling back again as to how our influence how our networks influence us because I believe it's such a it is such a massive question that we need to get our heads around as a general population at a societal level because how we are being influenced at the moment is moving so much faster than our willingness to look at it or the time that we're able or willing to spend to look at it And yet 93% of all of our decisions, um, purchasing choices, opinions, voting, um, voting decisions are now impacted by our networks, by what we read, what we see, who we follow. And that's massive. You know, that's 93% of, of everything that we either give our money, our attention or our power to is a result of these algorithms that I don't think that we're spending enough time asking questions about at the moment. Mm-hmm. So let's just, let's just look at journalism because it used to be, and I know I know for my mum, for example, for my parents, they are still of the belief that if you read it, if it has been published either online or in a newspaper, then it has to be true because there is a certain no. amount. There is an integrity of the journalist. There is a belief system, probably my parents are British, comes from having the BBC. Um, there is an, an inbuilt belief of the integrity of that journalism, that they would have done their homework, they would have spent time on it, and somebody else would have vetted it to make sure that it was truthful and balanced mm-hmm. before they went to the trouble of, of publishing it. And as you said in your books, you know, we used to rely on journalists to sift through all this information, but more people get their news from so many different places now that the ability or the viability for any news service to get revenue has, has diminished. And that's just a very long way, (laughs) very long winded way of me asking the question, you know, what is the, what is the future of investigative journalism? How should we approach it? And will it have a rebirth?
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing, actually, I think, you know, so the, I, I think of the internet as having sort of given everybody in the world a microphone, and at the same time, and, and that means that now we become increasingly reliant on things to filter that out. Because, you you know, if you're living, listening to 7 billion voices, you know, screaming at you at the same time, it it gets a bit overwhelming. And it's not quite that many, but, you know, there's lots of information coming and, and somehow the Internet then has to filter and and find what we like and what we want to hear. And that has the biases we were talking about before. But it also has another fact factor, which is that things get reposted and repackaged very quickly. And that's changing news production in ways that we hadn't anticipated and i think so sort of an example you know um, suppose that the bbc does uh, a long investigation you know spends a couple of years investigating something very very carefully and and you know paying journalists salaries to to go out and to collect information and essentially just work on this story for a couple of years they publish something and within minutes it can be repackaged by all kinds of other news sources, saying as reported by the BBC, and then more or less quoting the whole story. And so the,
1: there's no advantage to no advantage to breaking that story anymore, because you know exactly. you don't have to hold yeah. on to it.
0: Yeah, it used to be news cycles, right? The news cycle was it was a day you had a day advance, and somehow if you built a reputation for being the first news source to always have the most current news and so forth you know, that was what was critical. And so you you built reputations for having great journalists and and breaking stories. And now that advantage is really diminished. And that, that, that means that there's, you know, just less and less of an incentive to go out and, and to, to, to pay the money. And it's harder to, you know, to, to survive that way. And, um, you know, news staffs are down dramatically. So when you look at of uh, news staffs of newspapers, they're, they've dropped almost by a factor of a half. Um, and and it's, it's not clear that it's being made up in some other way. So the internet's great at, at giving us quick information about things that are rather superficial and easy to see. But deep investigative journalism, it's not clear how that's going to be provided in the future. And, and, you know, that's one of the cornerstones of democracy, right, that we, we really hope that that's the thing that that uncovers corruption or scandal that, and, you know, it, it'll still continue at a national level, just because it's so important. And there's an appetite for that, that, that you can earn a return on. But local politics, uh, that that's something where, you know, it, it could get very corrupt very rapidly.
1: Yeah, I actually pulled another great quote from your book, which was from HBO's The Wire, which I just love. And it said, you know, it's going to be one of the greatest times to be a corrupt politician. Exactly, yes. And, you know, the majority of us get the majority of our news and the majority of our information online now, and yet only 8% of the income of the revenue of a lot of these news companies comes from... From digital, and that just shows that they're yeah. they're trying to keep up with where we're getting our news, but right. n- but they haven't figured out how to monetize it for all the reasons you've just said. You know, we we can't monetize yeah. it because we can't um, we don't get to hold on to the story, so we don't get any of the benefits. You know, we can't monetize it because you know we don't get enough eyeballs to sell enough advertising because there are so many sources of information now, which just leads to cheaper and cheaper forms of reporting, which leads yeah. to. Yeah. Well, well, who knows where, who knows, who knows where that leads. I was actually talking to a futurist recently and he was saying that he believes that it leads to crowd crowdfunded journalism, where a journalist will say, this is a story that I want to spend time on. It's going to cost me X amount to be able to investigate this. Um, who will fund me? Mm hmm. But then you go back to the same problem again, which is those with disproportionate amounts of income and influence get their stories investigated, whereas those that don't, don't. So I don't right, have, right. I don't have, and I yeah. do you have you developed any kind of view if you look five years, ten years into the future of what investigative? I, can, I will learn to say that word one day yeah. in my life, investigative <laughs> journalism, what it might look like.
0: No, I, I think the, you know part of it is that that when you think about uh, the internet, it's opened all kinds of questions about property rights and who owns what information. And, and basically the, you know, historically we've always treated information as more or less free. And, uh, it, you know, there's, you have to at least quote somebody. So there's some copyright protection, but it, as long as you say, you know, that the BBC reported and then just put quotation marks around it. Um, basically you can take everything that they, investigate in and then just make it your own and and I think that's sort of the 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 point that we haven't come to grips with is now the the technology means that things can be rebroadcast and repackaged so quickly that we have to figure out a way to deal with that and I I don't know exactly what the answer will be but I think you know that somehow the legal structure around information and around the way the Internet works hasn't caught up with the technology. We're, we're still in a, a 19th century you know not even a 20th century, it's more of a 19th century legal system, and we're dealing with 21st century problems.:
1: Yeah, I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of, of yeah, solutions in my head, and, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, and i'm also the least qualified
0: person yeah, I, to, mean, to do that. I think as, I mean, as you pointing out you know crowdfunding is one way another way to do it would be to have it publicly funded you know literally to say look this this is a, a market that's not quite working the way we'd hope it would work and so this is a place where we could subsidize and you know subsidize news services um but then that that mixes politics with the you know, with the people that are supposed to be investigating the politicians. So it's, you know, it's it's a tricky business. It's not easy.
1: It's not, although that's an interesting idea. If if we decided that it was a pillar that we were, that we believed to be sacred enough, that we would, as a, a society, make a decision to collectively fund it. It would, yeah. would be interesting. Well, I mean, to my... To my final question now, and I could literally talk to you, talk to you all day about this topic. If if I could give to you a stage and and a microphone, and in front of you I could put every single person that you would want to influence on this topic, what's the what's the one thing, what's the one thing you would want them to know?
0: I I. I... I think the main thing is to really be aware of how insular our networks are and to the extent to which we're really confined and how information gets to us and, and which information gets to us, and just to be more and more active in seeking the sources and reaching out beyond those boundaries. And, you know, that's both in terms of personal, on a personal level, but also as a as a society, if we want to improve mobility, we want to help people reach out and, and advance and, and improve their lives. It's helping them reach out beyond the boundaries that, that they're naturally constrained in. And, and these constraints are just so powerful and so overwhelming that it's really vital for us to be aware of them and to try and counteract them.
1: Well, Matt, thank you so much being a part of the podcast it's it was a pleasure reading the book and it was an even greater pleasure being able to to dive into it with you
0: well thank you julie it's been really wonderful
1: thanks so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work It's called The Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.